in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. All will bow down and recognize him as Lord. Bless his holy name. We ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John, chapter 8, verses 21 through 30. That's the book of John, chapter 8, verses 21 through 30. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please just acknowledge it by saying simply Jesus. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 8, 21 through 30. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just what the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I'm always, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. May the Lord bless his word this morning. May he engrave it on our hearts like never before. You may be seated. Last week as we started part one of this sermon, I am the light of the world, we learn that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the true light. He's the very light of life in himself. We learn that whoever follows Jesus will no longer walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. 
We learned that Jesus, when he said, I am the light of the world, he was pointing to his divine identity, to his divine purpose. He was declaring himself to be the light that encompasses all of the world. He was claiming his exclusive power to have the source and be the source of spiritual light. There's no other source of spiritual truth available to all of mankind that does not come from Jesus. The analogy of light that he uses here speaks of the fact that he's the light of truth. He's the light of the world. He is the eternal light. He shared with us that all who follow him will immediately stop walking in darkness, which tells us that we have the assurance of salvation. He told us also that we will not live in a way of continual sin, but rather we would repent from that sin and we would stay close to the light of the world. He gave us a second promise last week that we will learn by imitating this light to be a light in life for others, that we wouldn't hide our light under a barrel, but we would allow it to sit on a stand where the whole world could see it and they would be attracted to the deeds, our good deeds that come from our Father. John 5.31 says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But we learned last week that the testimony of Jesus is always true. That Jesus has the power uniquely to offer true testimony about himself because he's never alone. Because there's always two witnesses, the Father who sent him and then Jesus himself. He told us that he had a unique origin, that he had a unique destiny, and that's why those he was speaking to would not be able to understand him because they did not know where he came from and they had no idea to where he was going. Then we learned that the judgment of Jesus is true. That we who have not come to the light are still spiritually blind. John tells us later in this gospel in chapter 9, verses 39 through 41, these words. For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, it was the unique authority of Jesus to judge those because he had been given that authority by his Father. Jesus can look in any situation and give the proper judgment, the genuine judgment. He never stands alone. He only does what he hears or he sees his father doing. He never does anything on his own. Now as we come to this morning, the second part of 
I am the light of the world. We're going to see as Jesus tells us that he's the light of the world and where he's going, those who do not believe in him cannot go. He's going to tell us that he's the light of the world and the reason they can't go, they can't follow him, they're seeking him and they can't find him because he is from above and they are from below. Jesus is the light of the world just as he's been saying from the beginning. And Jesus is the light of the world and because of that, we see in the conclusion of this chapter in verse 20, it simply says, and many believed in him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, the truth of your holy word matters. It matters to us as believers. For we as believers see your word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word, O Lord, guides us, it directs us, it illuminates us, and it confronts us. For your commandment is a lamp, and your teaching is a light. It reproofs us, and it disciplines us concerning how we live in this life. We are to follow your word and not to follow cleverly devised myths. But we are to trust you, O Lord, trust your word and walk by faith and not by sight. Why? Because we have this prophetic word with us. A word that is more fully confirmed and to which we must pay attention. We must see this word as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Jesus Christ is that bright and morning star. Let us remember this day that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we ask this morning, speak to us, O Lord, about your Son. Show us clearly that he is the light of the world. And all God's children said, Amen. Now, just as we started off last week in verse 12, we see again this word, again. And the Greek is polym. And it indicates once more a kind of pause in the action, but it also shows a fundamental continuity that is going to proceed here. We see that all the themes of John in verses 12 through 20, they find themselves enlarging throughout this chapter. So, Pastor, what are those themes? Well, first it includes where Jesus comes from. You see it in verse 23, 26, 29, where he's going. Verse 21, 22, 28, who his father is. Verse 26 and 27, 38, 54 and 55, who Jesus is. Verse 23, 26, 38, 54 and 55. And then it points to the opposite of what the Jews are asking. Jesus says, I'm from above, you are from below. 
Jesus says, you are from this world. I am not of this world. Jesus says, God is my father. And later on, around 844, he will say, your father is the devil. So let's just jump right in this text and allow it to speak to our hearts this morning. Look at John 8.21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, really in a large measure, if you've been paying attention here, you'll notice that verse 21 kind of repeats what Jesus has already said in John 7, 33 through 34. But now it seems a little more on edge. It seems a little more threatening. I want you to listen to those words of John 7, 33 through 34. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. We see even in this second retelling of that premise that worst of all, those who misunderstood Jesus the first time, they even misunderstand him even the more now. When he says, I'm going away, hupago in the Greek, he's referring here to his death on the cross. And he's going away to his father. John knows perfectly well that most of the Jewish leadership could care less if Jesus was going away. But they were still curious about this statement. They were curious about what he meant when he said, you will seek me. And you won't find me. So what does this statement mean, Pastor? It means that those unbelievers would still go on looking for a Messiah as long as they were rejecting Jesus. They would keep seeking for a Savior and their seeking would be in vain because if you're rejecting Jesus, there's no Savior to appeal to. You will seek him, but you won't find him because you're rejecting him. And all of this is because of their unbelief. And Jesus gives them a consequence that goes along with that unbelief. What does he tell them in 21? You will die in your sin. And I want you to underline this because here the word sin is singular because it is referring to a particular sin. It's referring to the sin of unbelief and the consequence that the sin of unbelief will bring in your lives. Again, it's reminiscent of what Jesus already said to them, or rather says to them later in John 9, 41, when he says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you said, we see, your guilt remains. So if anyone under the sound of my voice thinks that they right now see a way to another Savior that is not Jesus, you will remain in your sin and you will die in your sin. 
To reject the Son is to reject the Father. John 5.23 says that all my honor, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, Pastor, can we enter the presence of God on the last day? No, we cannot if we have the sin of unbelief present in our lives. But, Pastor, I have a question. Did Christ die for all sin except the sin of unbelief? If he died for all sin, why do people still go to hell for the sin of unbelief. Listen to me. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for also all the sins of the world. When the Bible says that Christ died as a sacrifice for sin, it does not mean that all sin was automatically forgiven if that person has not accepted Jesus Christ in faith. It simply means that the weight of his sacrifice can secure forgiveness for anyone who comes to him by faith. Our only way back to God is being prepared by Christ. And the question now is whether we will avail ourselves to such a marvelous opportunity. Christ died for all sin. His sacrifice was completely sufficient to pay the sins of the entire world. But forgiveness only comes to individuals when they, he or she, repents and believes. Mark 1, 15 says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Unless we accept by faith the provision of God in Christ, then we will still be in our sins. Those who die in unbelief die in their sins. Revelation 21, 7 and 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Listen to me. Those who trust in Christ for their salvation do not die in their sins. They die in Christ Jesus, and all of their sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is received through faith in Christ Jesus and comes with the promise, the solid promise of an eternity in heaven. Lack of faith keeps us unforgiven and keeps us consigned to an eternity in hell. Forgiveness, my friends, is a conditional offer. 
It requires the condition be met. What is that condition, Pastor? Faith. And then it gives us a promised result. What is that result, Pastor? Forgiveness. Faith in Christ is how people rightly respond to God's gracious offer of salvation. The Bible speaks volumes about the necessity of choosing faith in Christ. It speaks volumes about the results of unbelief. Jesus says, you were not willing. He's talking to them in Luke. 1334, when he said that he longed to gather the sinful inhabitants of Jerusalem and to be like a hen over her chicks, but they were not willing. Faith requires belief. Hebrews 11 and 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you understand that unbelief is a deliberate act? John 12, 34 says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Well, pastor, is there any excuse for unbelief? Absolutely none. Let's call Paul to the witness stand. Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Since what they may know about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature has clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made. So people are without an excuse. It's that spiritual damage that comes with unbelief. Romans 6.21 says, what benefit did you reap at the time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And pastor, is there justice? Is there punishment for unbelief? John three nineteen. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Brothers and sisters, even if we only sin once in our whole life, once you broke one of God's law, you broke them all. And God's perfect judgment means that every sin must be punished, and the penalty of sin is death. No human being can meet God's perfect standard without a supernatural Savior. We need Jesus. Do you know Jesus? He is the light of the world for those who believe, and those who believe can follow him to where he's going. We see here in verses 22 and 24, chapter 8, 
that Jesus is the light of the world. And he tells his opponents here that they are from below and that he is from above. Look what he says here in 22 through 24. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said this to them when he said, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you, you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The Jews here are addressing the crowds. And these Jews seem very skeptical, if not outright confused, about the statement Jesus has just made. Even those who believed in him, and we see that from the seventh chapter, but they still have like a, an infant's faith. You remember back in John 7, 34 and 36, where Jesus told them, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And then what did they say? The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They find themselves, they couldn't understand what was going on back in chapter 7. They were thinking that Jesus was contemplating a mission to the Gentiles on a teaching uh, conference, and now they are contemplating that maybe Jesus is thinking about suicide. They were wrong both times. Jesus does not need to kill himself to get away from them. But when Jesus lays down his life voluntarily, not in the act of suicide, but in the sacred act of submission to his Father's will. Look at John 10 and 18. No one takes it from me. The it here is his life. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to pick it up again. This is the charge that I have received from my father. Jesus now is going to cut through this misguided speculation about what he's declaring. And he's going to cut through it by making sure they understand the reason you are coming to the wrong conclusion is that you and I are dealing with two different concepts of reality and truth. Number one, the truth is, my friend, I am from above. I'm not of this world. I'm from heaven. I was sent by my Father. You are from below. Now, right here, not till we get to 44, is he speaking that they, uh, he's not speaking of hell right here. He's just speaking that they are from this world, this fallen world, this fallen moral order. Because this fallen world, since Adam and Eve, has been in rebellion against its creator. Remember who we're talking to here, or who's speaking to us. 
Jesus is the light of the world. He's the true light which is coming to the world. He gives light to everyone. Now he's in the world, the world that he made, and the world does not know him, and the world does not receive him. You see, there's a spiritual and material uh, chasm here that they can't work out. He is not from this world. This world hates Jesus. Did you not hear our elders' prayer this morning? We are pilgrims living behind enemy lines. The problem with us is we have gotten too comfortable in this kingdom instead of pursuing the kingdom that is to come. Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And if they don't hate you, it's because you look more like them than you do Jesus. You act more like them than you do Jesus. Jesus is saying the fundamental reason here that you can't understand me is that you don't understand my teaching because you have been blinded by the evil of unbelief. There's only one cure to remove such blindness. You have to be taught the truth of God's word. You have to be born again. You have to find the one who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. Unbelief and rebellion to the teaching of Jesus will never allow those people to escape death in their sins. Now, we talked about 21 and the word sin was singular, speaking of the singular sin of unbelief. Now when we get to 24, you see John expands and Jesus speaks. He says, sins in the plural because he wants to contrast the singularity of what happens in the sin of unbelief. And if you stay in unbelief, then you see that more corruption will mushroom in your life and you'll go from one sin to many sins. But then Jesus gives them an out. He tells them that you will die in your sins, that there is no escape, and the only escape is in genuine belief. Belief in what, Pastor? In belief in him. Look at the conditional clause. What does it say? Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you believe that I am ego emi, I am that I am. They understood that when Jesus said that, they were reminded to their Sunday school classes and reminded of Moses before he was sent to Pharaoh who looked back before he left saying, Oh, by the way, God, who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? He said, tell them that I am that I am sent you. And Jesus is telling them that you will die, you will remain in your sins unless you believe that I am he. Jesus is the light of the world. 
just as he has been saying. I want you to look at his response. It's almost comical here. In John 8, 25 through 27. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he, personal pronoun, but he, this refers to God the Father, but God the Father who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him, personal pronoun again, refers to God. They did not understand that he, Jesus, had been speaking to them about the Father. You see, there's some uncertainty here. Now, it's really not any uncertainty. It's just unbelief. They knew what it meant when he said, Ego e me. He knew that it meant that I am that I am. They knew that that meant that he was referring himself to be God. They knew when they asked the question, who are you? And he just takes them back to the beginning. I'm the same person I've been telling you from the beginning. My witness to you has been completely consistent. I'm not claiming anything new here. If it's hard for you to understand, it's because you can't hear my words because you are not my sheep. John 5.24 says it this way. Jesus told them these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. So two things. you got to hear the word. And what does the Bible tell us? It says faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the words of Christ. So you got to hear my words. And then you got to believe in the one, which is God the Father, who sent me. And if you do that, he says, that person has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus is not reluctant to speak here. In fact, he goes further than they ask him. He says, I got much to say. He said, I've got a task, and the task is to teach you everything that I've heard from my father, the one who sent me. And I got to tell not only you, I got to tell the whole world. I've got to testify that this world is evil. I've got to show the contrast between the revelation of truth that is mediated by my person and my father to show you that he has the ability to judge you because he's the creator of all things. He backs it up. He says, hey, I'm not speaking on my own. I'm only telling you what I've heard from my father. John 18, 15 through 16 says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the father who sent me. These words, he who sent me. 
They did not immediately understand that he was talking about his father God here. Which really begs the question for me. You know, I know I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer sometimes. But if you just go back and look at the fifth chapter of John, uh, verses 16 through 30, they should have caught on by now to what Jesus is referring to. Jesus already told them, number one, he gave them a visual uh, testimony in the healing of the man, telling that man to pick up his bed and walk. And then Jesus tells them that he is equal with God. And then Jesus tells them that he doesn't speak on his own authority, but he does everything uh, not on his own accord, but only what the Father shows them. Jesus tells them that God, my Father, has given me the ability to give life through myself to all who come to me. So really, there's no confusion here. There's denial because of their unbelief. You cannot live this life in denial and not die in your sins. Everybody's going to die. But there are two destinations. One is eternity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The other is an active death in hell. You know, I hear all the time, well, you know, death is really the absence of God. That is ridiculous. Death is not the absence of God. He's there. And he is active, just like it's an active eternal life that is joy. There's an active eternal life that is misery. What did David say? Where do I go to escape from you? If I go to the highest mountain, you are there. If I go to Sheol, you are there. So if there's a hell, he's the God of hell too. Jesus is the light of the world. And many will believe. And when he is lifted up, many more will believe. So your question might be something like this. Pastor, when will we get the full disclosure of who Jesus is? When is that going to take place? When are we going to see his glory most fully revealed? And I think that is clear in the fact that when we see, when we've already seen in our spiritual eyesight, the Son of Man lifted up. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he's lifted up to the Father's presence to return to glory. The glory he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. You know, so many Christians look at the cross as a defeat. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest glorification and coronation that you will ever see. Look at John. Go to John 12 for a moment. I'll give you a minute to get there. Go to John 12, 32 through 36. John 12, 32 through 36. And I, 
when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, and look at all this ties together. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself. If I be lifted up, it's part of what Jesus says here in John 8, 28, but also in John 12, 32. Then he goes on and says, and if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. The lifting up of Jesus was literal. Christ will be lifted up on the cross and die by crucifixion. Chapter 12 of John goes on. Because before this happens, you have the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It was a Passover. People were drawn there, seek, wanting to speak to Jesus. Jesus took this occasion to speak of his impending death and what those results would be. His mind was focused on the crucifixion that was before him. He knew that his death would bring life to many. But his heart was troubled. He declared his concerns in prayer. We see that uh, throughout chapter 17 of John. And he's asking also here in John 12, 20 through 28, for the Father to glorify his name. Suddenly a voice from heaven answered Jesus, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd heard the thundering sound, and Jesus explained that the heavenly message was not for him but for their benefit because God was about to judge the world. Once Jesus died on, in, on the cross, he showed his victory over death, his victory over the rule of this world. All of that was completed because he was lifted up. Jesus was not applying implying that every person without exception would be drawn to him because every person doesn't put their faith in him for salvation. Jesus meant that all ethnic groups from every part of the world would be drawn to him through his exhortation in death. All people, Jews and Greeks that were seeking him and who listened to his voice, heard his words, and believed. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. His primary reference is to the cross, my friends. His death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, all are linked to his glorious 
uh, exhortation, his coronation as he draws sinners to himself. The cross is the very centerpiece of the gospel. The exhortation of Christ is an event that defeats his enemies and gives us all eternity, eternal life with him. That's why you see when Jesus says, then you will know. When you see the Son, go look at the John 8, 28. When you see the Son lifted up, you will know that I am He. You see, the function of the cross was to reveal who Jesus was. That he had the power to die, the power to save, the power to be, re, to be resurrected. And you know what is interesting about verse 20 here in John 8? That the teaching of Jesus was so compelling to some of them that they were able to comprehend all of this without ever seeing the cross and the resurrection or ever seeing Jesus being lifted up because it simply says, many believe him. Early in John's gospel, back in John 3, probably 14, 15, Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Pastor, what is Jesus referring to here? He's referring to a story in the book of Numbers. You remember, a bronze snake was raised up in the wilderness and became this prototype, a a prophetic symbol of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. And the serpent was on Moses' staff, and when he raised it up, all those who looked at it and believed received a divine healing, and the serpent stopped biting them. It was a precursor to the fact that one day Jesus Christ will be lifted up on a cross to offer eternal life for all of those who would see him and would believe in him. They will be drawn and given salvation. It is at the cross where we encounter the justice of God and the judgment of God, but we also encounter the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of sins of God and the defeat of Satan. It is at the cross where Christ gives us salvation to those who believe and judgment to those who refuse to believe. It is at the cross where Jesus Christ sets us free from the chains of sin and that he lifts our lives out of the pit of hell. It's like him snatching a branch out of the fire to save us. You know, Sister Joe, it is... Incredible sometimes that even in bad things, good things happen, you know? And with the pandemic, the only good thing that I really see that has happened from this is that those who have been faithful and remained in church, that they are able to worship with their families 
unlike they would be in a regular situation. And that's very, that's great power in worshiping, you know, once or twice a month with your family, if you can't do it always. Because more is caught than taught. And I remember my great-grandfather, Dale Benning. And as I would sit next to him in church at Pilgrim Travels Baptist Church in Atlanta, and Dale was a stern man, about 6'4", didn't speak much, but if he did say something, you better catch it because he was a brother that would lay hands on you, and I'm not talking about it in a biblical way. And I remember just sitting at his side and watching him as his eyes would well up with tears and to see those tears flow on his dark chocolate skin when he would hear certain words of his favorite hymns. You know, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. I'm telling you, we who are in the church of Jesus Christ, we need to get back to the basis, and we need to understand that this book is true. If you still think that you can see by your own sight, you are as blind as Stevie Wonder. Sight only comes through faith in Christ Jesus. And unless you are happy in the fact that you could die at any moment in your sins and be away from the goodness and joy of God for eternity... It's time to see a gospel ophthalmologist that can correct your nearsightedness and give you full vision. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you and we thank you for today. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for immersing us in your word. And we just ask, Lord, that you carve into our hearts into our minds the memory of the power of your words and the weight of these words that we might recognize that there is only one true and living God and there is only one son that he has sent. So Lord, let us relinquish all of our foolish pride. Let us repent and let us come willingly to the gracious invitation that you give us day in and day out, moment by moment. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.